Well, good afternoon and welcome to this talk on why music matters in your life. Could I just start off by taking a straw poll? Could you put your hands up, your hand up, if music does matter in your life? So, right, so a self-selecting group of people. Um, well, of course, it, it's, it's perfectly possible for music to be something that someone can take or leave, uh, for whom there are other things in life that are more fulfilling. Um, so, there may even be people here today who have come along precisely to find out what on earth it is about these pointless patterns of sound that get us all so excited, or so many of us so excited. So, I want to talk about the, the various aspects of music because it, it is very much a question of different aspects of music that can affect us. Uh, there is no one magic answer to this question, why music matters in your life. Uh, it has profound effects on us in many ways. And it's perhaps worth pointing out that for much of the history of human music, um, that music has been a physical and a social activity. So it's just worth pointing out, therefore, that when we sit alone in our armchair and listen to a, a beautiful recording on a CD or whatever, um, that's actually a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, and as such, it's a little bit unusual. It's probably the most abstract form in which a human being can enjoy music other than actually just thinking it in their minds, which is another way you can perfectly legitimately enjoy music. Um, I think it was Brahms who once said towards the end of his life that he preferred to listen to music in his head than go and hear it performed. So, perfectly legitimate point of view, although it's quite nice to hear it performed as well. So, what we're going to do is look at the various aspects of music, uh, briefly, each one of course, uh, and there's no doubt about the fact that the physical effects of music are potentially very profound and very direct. When we look at people performing or dancing or even just listening to music, there will be physical things that happen, obviously more obvious things that happen if they're performing or dancing, but even if you're just listening to a piece of music, even if you're not involuntarily tapping your foot or your finger or moving in some way to the music, there may well be uh, a change of pulse rate perhaps, even a change of blood pressure, as a result of listening to whatever music it might be. And it may raise your blood pressure, it may lower it, <laughs> it depends on the nature of the music. But that, of course, uh, makes it a very powerful effect. Let's just investigate that a little bit and look at two contrasting examples. So if I play uh, this extract from Mozart Sonata, Let's just simply compare that with a piece of Bach. Mm -hmm. 
There are two different uh, characters, you might say, of music there. Certainly, there's a lot of difference between those two examples. And it may be that even just sitting there and listening to them, that your pulse rates would have slightly changed uh, in response to the two different musics. And one would expect, obviously, that the faster, rather more bouncy piece would engender a slightly more excitable pulse rate. Let's just try another experiment here. I'd like you this time to beat time to the music. And uh, so we've got, first of all, the Mozart, and just join in clapping on the beats when you feel like it. Here we go. Two, three, one, two, and three. Try the bark. Here we go. Etc. Etc. Et so now, would you would you say that as you clapped that you uh, perhaps latched onto the pulse a little bit more, or whether in both cases you felt some greater degree of stimulus uh, rhythmically from the second example? Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously that's just one very simple but extremely important parameter of music. You take a fast piece and play it slow, you can make it sound a lot sadder straight away, and vice versa. So now we're going to look at um, one other aspect of music, the social effects. And um, music, of course, is used in all sorts of public occasions, public ceremonies, church services, uh, political rallies. Imagine what those occasions would be like if the music were removed. We would have to work jolly hard to engender the same degree of, well, both arousal within the individuals, but I think also importantly the cohesion, the social cohesion of the group involved in that occasion. And so it's no surprise that uh, so many human rituals involve the use of music, and that's of course across all cultures. Likewise, if you look at the history of work songs, you find that the songs are designed to get people working together, literally get people working in a rhythm so that their work is better coordinated. And there again, the simple pulse of the music is the important thing there. And then in the shared act of listening, where again, we're just sitting back in a concert hall and listening, but everyone around us is doing so as well, the fact that we experience that particular performance together which, unless it's recorded, no one else will ever experience, is a very special thing. And if it's a great performance, then we feel that we've been a part of something very special. Now, is there anybody here with a birthday today? <laughs> no, a birthday this week? 
Last week will do, yes, 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 okay. Right, well, um, we won't see you happy birthday because this is being broadcast on the internet, and would you believe happy birthday is still in copyright? Uh, <laughs> but we can sing for She's a Jolly Good Fellow. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, we'll sing it in C. Excellent. Um, you are now a choir. <laughs> you have participated in a piece of music making, a nice simple tune that you all knew, of course, um, and the only thing that went, actually, it was a truly good performance. You were really together, really in tune, fantastic. Uh, we ought to meet again this time next week and do it all again but with the B minor mass or something. Um, and the only place where uh, you weren't quite sure what, to hap what was going to happen was when I deliberately paused too long at the... the da -da When's he going to move? And so say all of us. And that, of course, was, well, you might say my fault. I did it deliberately because, of course, it's a question, therefore, of actually, we're not going to do it, but we could, if we were a choir, we would then rehearse that bit because the conductor was whimsical and wanted to pause longer in that moment. And the choir would have to know that, and they'd have to work together to achieve that particular end. And, of course, choirs up and down the country are performing all the time. <coughs> thousands and thousands of people participate in choirs because it is a very fulfilling experience. And part of that fulfillment is that social side of it. It is a very communal thing to do. It's a wonderful sense of community to achieve a beautiful performance or even a pretty decent performance with a group of people that you've worked with. And you get to know them, and you come to share a lot of experiences with those people. And the social aspect of music is really, really important. In all of these aspects that we're mentioning, one can take an educational point of view. Um, if you teach children to play an instrument, or if you teach them to dance, uh, it helps them with their physical development, with their coordination. Uh, likewise, if you get them playing together pieces of music or just singing together, it helps them in their social interaction. So all of these things uh, can be developmental as well as simply those effects that we experience in our lives. The emotional effects of music are probably the effects that people think of first when any consideration of the effect of music in the round comes up. And Interestingly enough, although it is quite clear that there is an emotional uh, effect that music can have and an emotional expression that it can give, um, when we go on to the final part of the talk, I shall um, suggest that it's not just that at any rate, but that it's something that goes a bit uh, beyond that. So in the emotional effects of music, we can look at the different ways in which basic emotions are expressed. And 
one of the simplest aspects of the way in which emotion can be expressed in music and the way that we can have feelings engendered within us is just what we know of as consonance and dissonance. Here we have a chord made of two notes, those two, when they sound together, you get that sound there, which is a quite consonant sound, those notes harmonize together well, they blend together well, is really what it amounts to. When we talk about harmonizing, we talk about the extent to which one note blends with the other to make one single, as we call it, harmonious sound. And if we compare it with, let's say, those two notes together, well, that we consider to be a far more dissonant sound, and there are mathematical uh, ratios that underlie those differences, which one can look at and say, ah, oh, well, that's a much simpler mathematical ratio in that, and so, of course, it sounds sweeter to our ears, as indeed would that, or especially the octave where the notes blend so well that you wouldn't know there were two notes necessarily being played at that point. If you play with and you play them together, how would you necessarily know that there were actually two notes there? It just, the, the upper octave brightens the sound of the lower one. So that's an extreme example of the way in which notes can blend and it's the extent to which they blend that we call consonants. And the investigation of that goes right back to the ancient Greeks. And one of the most direct pleasures of music stems from the creation of harmonic tension through dissonance, through less consonant chords, and that resolution. And if we look at an example that we've already looked at here, make that a bit smaller now that it's on the screen. And this is the piece I was playing to you just now, the one that started. The Mozart. At the end of this first page of the piece, uh, let's go from this point here, so the, third, the second bar that you see on the screen there. Notice what Mozart did at the end there. He went not, which he jolly well should have done, shouldn't he? Uh, he's delayed that moment. Not only has he delayed it, but he's actually kind of mixed things up a bit because he could have gone leaving that note in the bass. That would have given us. Now, if you put it there, and then you'd have to put, oops, and then you'd have to take the thing back to uh, the G when you got to that chord there. Anyway, he doesn't do that. He, he goes to the home note of the scale, whilst all the other people all the other voices are still trying to do that. So there's quite a strong sense of tension on that final cadence. 
and a really lovely sense of relaxation as it moves out onto the consonant G major chord. And at the beginning of the previous bar, there's another, well, in fact, this whole phrase is quite climactic in the sense of using these moments of tension and resolution. If I go from, from here, we've got two of those occasions there. There's this note here, and then there's this one here particularly. So, and then the next one. to which uh, we create that tension and then resolve it uh, has uh, a sort of emotional correlate in the sense that the emotional tension is symbolized by the harmonic tension and its resolution is obviously symbolized by the resolution of the harmony. And if I say that, it's from a long experience of having thought about these things uh, because once again we're looking at pointless patterns in the air we don't know why that should have an effect on us, uh, but we can at least hear that that note there and that note there didn't fit the underlying harmonic milieu, the environment within which that melody was being played, uh, and had to resolve onto the note above in each case, as it happened, uh, in order to harmonize with what was going on underneath. And that simple process of creating dissonance and resolving it uh, is a constant ebb and flow of tension, which is clearly very pleasurable to experience. Something else about this piece uh, is the fact that it's very smooth, and if we were to take the same piece and make it less smooth, we would immediately give it a different sort of emotional spin. So that if I were to play... It doesn't really have the same effect, does it? Um, and Paul Mozart turning over in his grave at this point, but actually I'm sure he would have appreciated the illustration. Um, and uh, he was, he was uh, very prone to play around with music uh, himself. And it's by playing with these things, as he did as a child, that you learn to uh, create different effects. And we have stories of him over in London at the age of nine uh, in uh, the rooms of J.C. Bach, Johann Christian, J.S. Bach's youngest son, uh, the so-called London Bach, um, and Mozart just improvising at the keyboard and saying, here's, here's a, a happy aria, and actually making up the words as he went along as well, and then here's an angry aria, he'd say. And uh, this is all attested to by witnesses, and so this, this great uh, virtuoso, even at the age of nine, is really getting that experience of how one makes music express different emotions. So much is it the case that music can um, affect our emotions that uh, some people have actually felt that it had a, a moral power. And certainly Plato, for example, claims that it has a moral power. Um, oops, let's just 
go back to there and more than anything else rhythm and harmony find their way to the inmost soul and take the strongest hold upon it he says um, he also says as a result that certain modes that is to say certain scales have different moral power. That one there was the Midian scale, and you should all now be prone to slothfulness and drunkenness. <laughs> okay? Um, the fact that you're probably not was because I played it softly, um, and not for very long. So he took this rather perhaps simplistic view of uh, music that depending on which scale you were playing in, um, it could have a particular moral effect, good or bad. And he did say that certain, certain modes really should not be used. So we can get a, a very direct sort of emotional effect from the simple degree of consonance or otherwise that we feel in a given moment of music. But of course music is of course about moments but it's also about larger spans. And if we just compare to other examples now, let's take uh, a couple of pieces by Chopin I'll just start, uh, or take extracts from each one. Here's the E-flat minor study. one piece with a particular feeling. If we contrast it with a different study, um, take for example It's a different feeling, isn't it? Um, and it's undoubtedly the case that in both of those works there is uh, a certain emotional feel to it. If we were to send out questionnaires to you all asking you to tick boxes for words that fitted one piece rather than the other, there'd be quite a degree of consensus. But that's the point at which we do come up against a limitation because whilst the second piece, the famous revolutionary study, um, is supposed to be uh, a, an angry piece brought on by Chopin's hearing about the November uprising in the savage way in which it was put down by the Russians. Nonetheless, uh, there's more to it than just anger, and there is an ebb and flow of sound. It's not all bang, crash, wallop all the time. So we have to look a little bit further at what there is in music. And I've left until last the intellectual effects, um, and it's always a bit of a loaded word to say intellectual. Um, probably heard the story about the, um, the three KGB policemen and they were asked why they went around in threes and it was said that one could read and one could write and the other one was there to keep an eye on the two intellectuals. Um, and that idea that intellectuals are somehow uh, um, highbrow and highfalutin and all that, um, 
there are things which go on in music which are to do with pattern processing, which we all do. All of our minds are geared up to that pattern processing. And when one pattern and another, previously divided, are found in some way to merge, we experience a, a eureka moment. That word, eureka, comes from that moment of discovery, supposedly when Archimedes sat in his bath, of course. But whether or not that's true doesn't matter. The word exists to express that sudden outpouring of joy at this discovery of some new link between two previously divided thoughts. Music is full of supposedly divided thoughts that actually in some way link. And one of the reasons I believe that it is so compelling and so uh, direct in its effect on us is that we none of us need degrees in musicology to perceive the sort of unity that is in with a great work of art. So in the final section of this talk, I want to discuss the uh, opening of Beethoven's Waldstein Sonata. And so that is here. Right. Is there? Right. Okay. I don't know why that should be, but um, I'll stand here. Uh, well, I won't stand here for a moment. I'll sit there. Um, does the interference still happen when I sit here? No, okay, <laughs> I'll sit down. Anyway, here's, here's the opening of the Waldstein through to the introduction of the second subject. the opening of the Waldstein Sonata, and um, the difference between those first and second subjects, the opening music could not be more different from the passage that I played just at the end there, the so-called second subject, which is in sonatas designed to be a contrast with the so-called first subject. That's what it's all about. It's a dramatic interplay uh, aimed ultimately at reconciliation between those contrasts. That theme that I played just then will come back later in the same key as the opening theme. But at the moment, it's not. At the moment, we have a first theme, which is in C, which is made out of short notes, down here, and has little wisps of melody 
right up high there. By contrast, the second subject is in the key of E major, very different key. Um, even if I played and then moved to that tune there, there's still quite a strong contrast because different notes are being used that aren't used in the key of C major. So it's as if Beethoven has taken on board that ethos of sonata form to do with conflict that should be resolved by the end of a work. And he said, okay, so I'll make the short staccato notes into long held notes. I'll have a sort of chorale-like feel to it and I'll have it right up here. I'll have it in a key which is very different, four sharps instead of no sharps or flats. And instead of going up, I'll come down. And that, of course, begs the question, could he arbitrarily have just taken those thoughts and said, right, I'll take any old tune, that shove it in E major, make it up there, going downwards, harmonize it in a nice, smooth, rather full-bodied harmony, and um, would any old tune then do? Well, knowing Beethoven, probably not. And yet the difference between those two things is, is palpable, isn't it? So I always ask myself the question with Beethoven, knowing him as I do, I wonder whether actually there's something going on there whether there's a connection that, at least consciously, I haven't spotted. Uh, and so, to investigate that, I looked at the following way of approaching it. First of all, we need to just consider the elements of that first subject, particularly the bit at the top. Now then, he does all the same thing again. But a little bit lower, and now instead of... He's changed that into... into the minor. So, he's taken that rather prominent little idea there, which incidentally could just as easily have been... He could have just taken the little passage there and done it up an octave there. He may even have thought of doing that and then thought, well, no, let's just tweak it a little bit. <laughs> dum ba -da dum Or he might have just said, let's take the up to there. And of course then there's a missing note of the scale. So there's already not a lot of difference between that idea there and that idea there. So we see the evolutionary way in which Beethoven applies his thoughts to any given musical idea. Anyway, those passages up there, they're very prominent because they're so high above what the left hand's doing. And I'm just going to play to you a little video which animates 
the way in which possibly at any rate the little theme there that was so prominent at the beginning could be turned into the second subject. So that's how it appears in the second line of the piece. That's how it appears a little bit later in the piece. Now, if we take that second one, which was... and drag it down... Go on, one more. There we are. Um, and now we can see that, although one was a bit higher than the other, it was exactly the same thing in terms of its melody shape. And then if we drag all of those down a little bit further for comparison, and incidentally the greens and the blues and the reds, they're colour codings for pitches, so G sharp is green. And we're going to drag this down until we get that there, and then we listen to this. So these are those little tiny wispy themes that we had at the beginning. And suddenly we've got which, knowing Beethoven, is not coincidental. <laughs> there are quite a lot of other things by Beethoven which might have fitted in at that point. Um, you know, he could have done... From the Emperor, it could have been... from the late E minor sonata, but, um, but he didn't. And actually, whilst actually the, the, the second of those examples could be probably made to fit uh, a little bit better than the first one. Nonetheless, the one he's chosen is the one that really grows absolutely directly out of the opening initial idea. And so you may well say, well, yes, that's all very well, but you've spent hours on your computer figuring that out and making little animated displays of it, we're just sitting in the concert hall listening to someone play it. How on earth do we know that? Well, how do you recognise other people's faces? How do you catch a ball? There are so many things which, which our brains do, which we're really quite unaware of, or at least perhaps it's better to say we're unaware of just how significant and how complex those activities are. Uh, the computer scientists and roboticists who experiment with making robots that can catch a ball have not yet done very well. Uh, it's a very, very complex task. Um, recognition of faces actually is something that is very much being researched in the present day, and it's not bad. Apparently it's coming on quite well, but I bet it's not as good as any one of you in this room. Of course, that means that computers can at least be set to do the task and you don't have to sit in a room looking at lots of faces. So that's, uh, that's fine. But the, the point is that we do do enormously complicated things that go far beyond what we realise. And those things we do um, are no more complicated, I would suggest, than intuitively understanding the relationship between... and... I agree that it is perhaps um, 
unlikely that you'd consciously realize it. I mean, I played that piece for years before I twigged that, in fact, there was that relationship. Um, and it was only because, knowing Beethoven as I did, I thought, I'll bet there is something to be found there. And lo and behold, there was. Uh, and in fact, any time you look at a piece of Beethoven, you'll almost certainly find that where things are at their most different, there's some hidden connection, because he likes that. He likes, and what he's after is that unity within diversity, which he was so good at, um, and all the great composers are good at creating that unity within diversity. And the the sense of awe that comes from experiencing a great work, particularly if we know it well and hear a wonderful performance, is a lot to do, I'm sure, with subconsciously at least intuiting those deeper relationships that really make that piece uh, uh, the unity that it is. And if we were to look at, uh, let's say, the works of Bach, we would find very similar things going on. Um, and Bach went on record to say that the act of composition was an attempt to hold up uh, a mirror to the miracle of God's creation. So he took a very theistic view of it, and not every composer does, but nonetheless there is a very high ideal there, and something that uh, chimes in with that, that almost sense of revelation that one can get from a great performance of a piece of music. So I'm going to just flip back to the... <coughs> the PowerPoint now, and just recap that little list of effects. You will have seen straight away, probably, that whilst I've separated them out, they're not truly separable. Um, we wouldn't be able to do a lot of music without the intellectual grasp of what was going on, the pattern recognition and the pattern formation. Uh, the emotional and the physical are intimately intertwined. They are much the same thing, really. I could have made them the same thing, but I did want to separate the, the things like dancing and the actual act of playing an instrument from the more visceral feelings that we get when a piece of music is loud and fast or soft and slow. But all of them really tie together. And my feeling is that uh, if you were to work your way through that checklist and ask yourself, well, does music have a physical effect on me? Is there a social effect? Is there an emotional effect? Is there an intellectual involvement with it? I think you'd find that there was a box to be ticked on all of those. And if music matters to you, it's probably because it's working in all those different ways, in a very fulfilling way. So even if, as in our modern age, we do that most abstract thing of sitting back in a comfy chair and listening to a recording. We're still taking in those patterns and processing them, responding to, to them physically, emotionally, and intellectually, and at some level, responding even to the deepest formal relations, structural relationships within the music, and finding an enormous satisfaction in that. So, if you don't um, think you've got any of those effects, check your pulse, because <laughs> you may be dead. Thank you very much. <laughs>